This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast from Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Each week, I will bring you conversations with thought leaders and innovators from the fields of healthcare, education, transportation, and our Massachusetts economy. We launched Hubwonk in April 2020 amid the epidemic of COVID-19. Health and the coronavirus is top of mind for everyone. Today's guest is Harvard-trained virologist, Dr. Peter Korczynski. Peter applies his scientific knowledge to his work as principal of RA Capital, investing in biotech companies on the frontier of discovery. Peter has written a new book, The Great American Drug Deal, outlining ways to improve how we invest in drug development. Peter's articles have appeared widely and have been remarkable in their view that a vaccine for COVID-19 may come sooner than we think. Joining me from Pioneer is Bill Smith, Senior Healthcare Fellow. Bill will share his perspective on where we are now in this global health challenge and what he sees as a prudent way forward. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you, Joe. Um, I'm anxious to hear from Peter today because uh, I don't know about you, but I'm on COVID-19 overload. Uh, we're getting so many stories uh, and, and a lot of stories contradict each other. Lockdowns work, lockdowns don't work. Remdesivir works, remdesivir doesn't work. And, and Peter has written very definitively that uh, the, the makeup of this virus makes it very vaccinable. That they, they are, are going to come up with a vaccine and it is going to work and it may come sooner, sooner rather than later. And so I'm very eager to hear his views. That's great. I think you invented a new word there, Bill, vaccinable. I like it. Yeah. Great thoughts. So when we return, we'll be joined by Dr. Peter Kolchinski of RA Capital. Okay, we are back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi with Bill Smith of Pioneer Institute. We're now joined by Dr. Peter Kolchinski. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, thanks for having me, Joe. Well, I just finished your, uh, your new book, The Great American Drug Deal. It was a fascinating read, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, so before we get into the nitty gritty talking about COVID-19, I'd like to share with our listeners a story you, you wrote in the, I think it was in the foreword of what drew you to become a virologist in the first place? Yeah. Uh, so you're, you're probably uh, referring to uh, that as a kid. Uh, my, my dad actually had told me, um, uh, I remember this conversation was kind of formative. I uh, said, you know, uh, I rode the computer wave and the, that wave served me well. And indeed, he started up his own company in the computer field. Uh, and uh, I think there's another wave coming and it's the right wave for you, biotechnology. Uh, and uh, I, I must have been like 13 or something like that. And I was like, yep, that's my wave. I mean, you know, no diligence, no nothing. I just accepted it. He totally did not see Facebook and Google and Web 2.0 and all that coming. So I, I missed that wave, but uh, not complaining. Biotechnology has been pretty remarkable. Um, but there's so much to do in biotechnology. And to be clear, biotechnology to start with, if you're a student, is really just biology. You gotta learn basic biology. Um, and uh, what specifically shifted me to focus on virology was seeing the movie Outbreak, all right? So depending on uh, your demographic, you, you, you might remember that movie with Morgan Freeman and Dustin Hoffman. And you know they battle an outbreak of uh, a, a, an Ebola-like virus in America. 
Um, and it was the movie before the current generation had the movie Contagion, which I got to say is way better. Uh, it's way more realistic. Uh, so no, no knock on Dustin Hoffman, but uh, Hollywood got Contagion much more right. Um, and when I saw that movie and I saw Dustin Hoffman wearing a spacesuit, you know, uh, trying to save the world, playing with dangerous virus, I was like, that's what I want to do. Uh, so I was in, in just starting college at the time, and I did everything I could to work in the virology labs uh, at my university, um, and then later went to grad school, uh, you know, and continued to work on viruses. I did HIV research. So, Peter, uh, talk a little bit about how your scientific background informs your investing. Maybe some examples of, of you know, how you, you come up with some good ideas for investing because of your, your extensive scientific background. Sure. Well, um, so RA Capital uh, has been around uh, now for uh, uh, like 18, 18 years. Uh, it's basically the only thing I've done in my whole career uh, is, is uh, grow up to be an investor. Um, and uh, we, we manage a fair bit of money now with about 90 people on the team. Uh, we'll invest in drug companies, medical device, diagnostic companies. We're generally focused on new products, emerging products. So once companies become established, revenue generating large companies, um, we've probably moved on and we're focused on the next new thing. Um, and uh, I would say that it has become uh, pretty common for investors in this field to have a scientific background, just because the language is so daunting. Um, you know, to the public, and, and the public's certainly experiencing this now with COVID, you know, they're, they're having all these terms thrown at them. You know, just saying that, you know, the virus binds a receptor on the cell. Receptor. Like, that's not really a word that the public uses for, for anything. In fact, I, I can't even imagine what that word even means uh, to a lay person anymore. Uh, to me, it's a protein on the surface of the cell that the virus binds to. And so the people in this field, they throw jargon around like crazy. And if you don't speak the language, it's just so hard to uh, conduct a... Um, you know, a productive meeting in 30 or 60 minutes, which is, you know, the, the typical length of time in which people uh, meet one another and hear, hear various pitches. Um, the, the kind of science that we do at RE Capital, though, I think uh, goes to a next level. It's beyond just, uh, you know, speaking the language of science. When you're researching something entirely novel, it means that all the drugs that you have now somehow are not enough. Uh, there's still a lingering problem. And someone is crazy enough to say, I think I have a solution that everybody else has overlooked. In other words, you're gonna have to learn a few new words that you didn't know before, right? Because if, if it were readily understood by others, then probably you wouldn't still have an unsolved problem. Entrepreneurs by, by definition are always dealing in what other people have overlooked. And so we are constantly learning more words, more uh, you know, scientific concepts. We're being taught by all these brilliant people that are coming uh, to us and saying, I need some money to fund what I want to do. I think I can really make a difference. Uh, here's why I think it'll work. And then they teach us. So we're constantly learning science. And then what we've discovered is that you can help these companies raise more capital later, because inevitably when we fund the early stage stuff, eventually these products get into clinical trials. They require even more funding. And while our fund is fairly large at this point, it's still not nearly large enough to support, you know, what uh, these companies are going to uh, need to do later as they get into advanced testing when they need to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. 
And so the question is, how can we help them tell their story more clearly than they did when they first came to us? Like we think about how much work it took us to learn their language, to learn those you know, words of ancient Aramaic that they seem to be speaking. You know, it's, it's barely comprehensible. But then it dawns on us after weeks of work, maybe it dawns on us. Oh, wow, I see what you've done. I see how your drug is going to you know, uh, treat this cancer. It's brilliant. Why don't we work on how we can uh, tell that story better so that as you migrate to the public markets where people are short on time, they can understand what you're saying in maybe a standard one hour meeting. Right. And that may require more studies, more experiments, you know, but also just redesigning your slide deck to be clear. And so if they can successfully distill their value proposition down to a one hour meeting, uh, then they are ready to go public and to meet with all the investors that are short on time and we'll give them at most an hour. So we study communication. We study how complex ideas can be rendered simply. Uh, and when COVID struck and all of a sudden we saw the public struggling to understand things that, you know, our basic virology, basic immunology, uh, where they started saying, well, we don't have any coronavirus vaccines. Why should we believe that there will be any? Uh, and just because I recover from, uh, you know, COVID, does that mean that I'll be protected? Like, how can I be sure? Um, these things to us are not complicated. They're actually not scary. There's really good reason to believe that, yes, we will have a vaccine. And yes, you will likely be immune uh, to, to the virus after you've recovered. Um, no, we can't say anything with certainty because that's not how science operates, but you know, it's likely. Uh, what we found is that these things are simple enough uh, for us. We, we kind of took them for granted, but to the public, they're reassuring. You know, and we sound like optimists, even though to us, we're just being realists. So, Peter, you, uh, um, we've had outbreaks, of course, uh, many of us are talking about the uh, 1918 flu, uh, but more recently we've had scares of MERS or Ebola. What are the characteristics of, of these viruses, uh, whereas there may be millions and billions of viruses, only a few really uh, make the headlines and start killing large numbers of people? What, what are the characteristics, historically, of the ones that are, quote unquote, really bad? Yeah, so um, there are indeed uh, many, many viruses out in nature, um, but viruses uh, have to be adapted to their host. Uh, you know, think of it like a computer virus uh, that, uh, you know, is sort of specific to an operating system, right? Generally, computer viruses that can infect uh, Windows computers are not the kinds of viruses that would infect a Microsoft computer, right? So somebody would have to write a specific virus for, uh, you know, Apple uh, OS. Um, similarly, viruses that have adapted, you know, to um, infect fish would find our cells, our bodies to be so foreign that they just couldn't infect us, right? It's extremely rare. Um, so, the risks to us generally are from uh, viruses that have uh, evolved to infect animals that in some ways are similar to us. Um, and, um, or, I mean, I wouldn't say chickens are particularly similar to us, but uh, flu clearly have, has uh, evolved to be able to replicate in chickens and in humans. So there have to be certain things in common. Um, and so if we focus on uh, those animals that have certain common features uh, and 
mammals, you know, certainly are, uh, can be a risk, dogs, cats, but cows um, and camels, MERS came from camels, bats, uh, certainly it turns out, then we can study those animals. We can see what viruses circulate in them. And then we can ask ourselves, do we really need to put ourselves in close proximity to those animals? Is that really necessary? And um, I think that what we would find is that as long as people enjoy bacon, you know, it's going to be hard not to have people in close proximity to pigs for the same reason chickens, right? So flu is going to be near impossible to distance ourselves from as long as we are, um, you know, uh, putting people close to poultry of any kind. Even then, if we were to stop eating chicken, you know, there are birds around the world that will, uh, you know, carry the virus, but it lessens it. You know, the odds of a wild duck, you know, uh, sort of sneezing in your soup are slim. Um, so uh, we, if you want to think radically, if we were to shift from uh, our uh, carnivorous diets to uh, either plant-based or at least artificial lab-grown meat, which I know I'm not a good salesperson for artificial lab-grown meat. Later on, they will solve how to pitch it to people much more attractively. But one of the merits of that would be that a reduction in our reliance on animal husbandry um, will reduce the transmission of viruses from those animals to people. But generally speaking, it's been uh, human beings in, uh, either encroaching on uh, the lands of uh, animals or else bringing animals um, into their lives, into their diets that has uh, created this kind of uh, opportunity for transmission. Um, I think that there are realistically a finite number of types of viruses that are gonna cause problems for human beings. Um, for the first time, the whole world really cares about solving a coronavirus. We've had four coronaviruses circulating throughout the population uh, for as long as we know. You know, they just cause a mild cold. And it's never been all that interesting to develop vaccines or drugs against that. There hasn't been, um, you know, a commercial need, uh, I would say, or a commercial value proposition. By the time you even know you have a cold, you're on your way to recovering. So to get a prescription for a medication, whatever, it's just not practical. So I don't think any investors or company ever thought they would make much money with some vaccine or treatment for the common cold. But... Uh, you know, as soon as we saw SARS and MERS, you know, the industry did jump into action. It's just that uh, before we developed any products for those, those outbreaks were contained. They were contained because the viruses, uh, you know, kind of made the presence known quite early. They went right for the lungs. They infected the patients severely. And so you could see, oh, that person's infected. And so they were quarantined and that reduced its spread. The trick that uh, SARS-2, you know, uh, has picked up um, uh, is that it is uh, a stealth virus. You know, it infects your throat quietly first, you know, your nasal passages, you sneeze, you spread it, you breathe, you spread it. And then later in some patients, it shifts down to the lungs and it causes severe disease and uh, results in some people being hospitalized and some people dying. So um, by the time you figure that out, it's already spread to others. And so you have to preemptively quarantine people, you know, which is what, what we're in now. It's a social distancing um, uh, approach that we're taking. And so we've never had to do that uh, before. The current generation has not had to. Technically, it's how 
we dealt with the Spanish flu way back when. You can go back, you can read stories about how cities had exactly the same debates we're having now. Like it's, it's uh, impossible, you can't expect people to isolate themselves. You know, people were protesting at uh, the idea of having to continue uh, social distancing. Um, but, you know, this isn't a new phenomenon. And the fact that the only way to really like mitigate the spread of a virus is to spread ourselves out so that it's harder for the virus to jump from person to person. It's not a complicated concept. It's sort of a, a basic ground truth, right? You, know, you don't want a computer virus to spread, stop sticking disks from one computer to the other, you know, disconnect them, you know, take them off the internet, right? Like these are basic ideas. So uh, here we are, you know, now uh, plagued by this virus, um, trying to keep it from spreading um, and, and killing vulnerable people. Um, and we are working on solutions. And we're working on really, uh, I'd say three, three kinds of solutions. One is just keep the patients who are severely infected alive long enough so that their immune system gets over it. Um, you know, two, drugs that will actually slow down the virus, like target the virus and help our immune systems beat it. Um, but they're really focused on um, SARS-2. And then there's this third category that's going to take longer to develop, um, but that really get to the common uh, mechanics of all coronaviruses. Uh, and if we can develop drugs that will not only treat SARS-2, you know, gum up its, its inner workings, but also work on many other coronaviruses that are like it, then that will be a really useful drug to pull off the shelf when SARS-3, 4, or 5 hit, right? And we can anticipate and invest ahead of time the way that we have invested in pandemic flu vaccines when we sensed, you know, H5N1 is percolating, you know, uh, this is the avian flu, it's percolating. It doesn't transmit well between people. So we don't have to worry about a pandemic just yet, but man, what if it did spread between people? Let's make sure we have a pandemic flu vaccine. And so the government, um, multiple governments commission the development of vaccines that for all we know, will never get used, right? So if you had told those companies, oh, go ahead and make the vaccine and you can charge, you know, some amount of money per person, they would say, no, I'm not gonna develop it because there will never be, there you know, may never be such a pandemic. So you have to commission it, you know, and pay them and guarantee them that, you know, this is uh, actually gonna be, uh, you know, compensated work. Uh, you can't expect people to work for free, but then you build up these stockpiles and when the pandemic hits, you've got your insurance policy, right? So, you know, you don't buy an insurance policy hoping to use it. You buy an insurance policy hoping you don't use it. So uh, we can commission these kinds of drug classes that will work not just on SARS-2, but hopefully all coronaviruses or many of them anyway. And we can study the kinds of viruses that are circulating among animals um, that might jump to humans uh, and develop drugs that will gum up the works of not just you know one strain, but uh, many strains. So if we mount that kind of an effort, not just the Manhattan Project to solve you know, COVID-19, but a Manhattan Project to really prepare us against you know, um, the vast majority of pathogens that might come our way, then we might be able to fundamentally bend the curve on pandemics as a whole. And we'll look back on SARS-2, on COVID-19, as a kind of vaccine, 
that made our collective immune system that much stronger, made us better prepared. Peter, are you generally talking about therapeutics or vaccines when you say create this arsenal of, of things? Yeah, so it's an important distinction. It's a good question. So um, generally speaking, uh, vaccines are rather particular to a pathogen. Vaccines train your immune system to recognize what the pathogen looks like on the outside. And uh, our immune systems naturally do that. They take a snapshot of uh, you know, a virus that's infected you and they remember it. And next time that uh, virus or something very similar to it shows up on your doorstep, you know, enters your body, the immune system jumps into action and nips that infection in the bud. That's in, in principle how it works. And uh, strains, to the extent that the immune system cares, strains change how they look. Two strains of the flu look different right on the outside, but their inner workings are actually quite similar. And so what I'm talking about are not uh, vaccines that in the future will work against all coronaviruses. I actually think that's probably impossible. The fact that I just said that means somebody will take issue and, and say, no, I believe it's possible, in which case, great. But I at least think it's so hard that it's not practical to, to think about developing a vaccine that works against all coronaviruses. I think we can develop vaccine platforms, technologies that will allow a very rapid response to a new strain. So the mRNA vaccines, for example, or the DNA vaccines, and even some of the vectorized vaccines can be scaled up really quickly, uh, but you still need to get a snapshot of what that bad guy looks like, and then it'll take you months, uh, at a minimum months, to scale up uh, production of that particular version of the vaccine for that strain and then you have to distribute it, you know, and most of these vaccines have to be injected and some of them have to be injected twice to build up immunity. So just, you know, the uh, sheer effort involved in scaling it up and distributing it is going to take many, many months. It's hard to imagine deploying it, you know, even as quickly as six months, or 12 months, if we were to develop the perfect vaccine platforms. Mind you, in the movie Contagion, I believe they, you know, invented the vaccine on day like 133 of the pandemic. That's, that right there is where uh, Hollywood um, was a little too optimistic. A more realistic version of Contagion would have been about a, a five hour movie and they would have you know, uh, invented the vaccine maybe on day like you know, 300. Or I should say proved, proved that it worked and started releasing it to the public on day 300. And then it would have taken another you know, three, 400 days before they were manufacturing the scale large enough uh, to address uh, meaningful parts of the population. That would have been a much more tedious movie, which is exactly how social distancing feels right now. Really tedious. Hollywood obviously wanted to spare the viewers that. Um, but uh, if we're going to go with vaccines, we have to be prepared that any pandemic is going to result in, um, you know, just a long period of tedium that will have economic consequences. A drug, however, a drug actually gets to the inner workings of the virus. It finds the things that are pretty common across many strains. So you may have, uh, you know, it may be that SARS-2, you know, has a cousin out there still in bats that uh, is exactly the same on the inside, um, but uh, just has a different appearance. So that later when we've all got immunity, thanks to either recovering from the infection or from vaccines, uh, when we've all got immunity SARS-2, then its cousin pops out and is completely uh, foreign to our immune systems, but the inner workings are the same. 
the enzymes that that uh, make copies of the viral genome and machinery, uh, you know, that enzyme will be the same. And so we will be able to take a drug that we've developed that gums up the inner workings of SARS-2 and immediately apply it to treat uh, people who show up uh, sick with SARS-3 symptoms, right? So that changes the way we think about a, a pandemic. So if you knew that worst case, you're gonna get sick, but the moment you're sick, don't worry, just show up at the hospital to give you an injection or they'll give you a pill or whatever it is, and it will immediately tamp down the infection. It's just not that scary anymore, right? Uh, I mean, I, I like analogies. I'm playing with this one, so tell me if it works. But, um, you know, we don't fear playing soccer or even going, uh, you know, climbing uh, because we know that if we break our leg or our arm, as unpleasant as that is, we've got a healthcare system that will patch us up. Hundreds of years ago, that could have killed you. You know, today, you'll be okay, right? So if we can change the way that we think about these pandemics to where, all right, uh, some percentage of the population is gonna go through uh, unpleasant symptoms, they'll become you know, short of breath, hypoxic, they'll need to go in the hospital, they might need to sit for a few days and get oxygen, but the, you know, the, the rate of death is gonna be much, much lower um, and they won't have to stay in the hospital for very long. That's just not that scary. Maybe you don't have to shut the economy down for any period of time, as long as you've got millions of doses uh, in, in the US and you know, millions of doses um, in Europe, and basically millions of, uh, of doses stockpiled around the world of drugs that would be effective against whatever strain of coronavirus would hit. Therefore, the only true pandemics we would then see would be viruses that have not only changed their outer appearance so that the immune system doesn't recognize it, but also their inner workings so that now the drug armamentarium that we've built up no longer works. And that's a lot harder for a virus to do. Viruses can change their appearance, but it's a lot harder for them to really mix and match their inner machinery. So you've given us a, a good sort of uh, way forward, looking at the brave new world where we sort of prepare ourselves for the next pandemic. But bring us back to where we are now. I want our listeners to have optimism, albeit informed optimism, about what we're going to do with the, uh, the, the issue, the challenge at hand. Uh, what, what, are, what do you see as the next steps for uh, testing, for treatment? Uh, you know, how, are, how are we getting out of here? And, and you know, get, if it's the Hollywood version instead of the director's cut, that's okay. But, um, you yeah. know. Uh, I, I, I'll summarize it uh, like this. I think that at the moment, it's too early to tell whether any of the drugs that we've got um, in clinical development are going to work. Uh, because those drugs were not really developed for coronaviruses. Um, the, uh, we're, we're just trying to see what might work of our current armamentarium. There are drugs that uh, have been uh, developed specifically for uh, SARS-2 and coronaviruses that are a little behind. Some of them will have clinical data towards the end of this year and might become available uh, at the end of this year and early next year. Um, you know, that is going to feel like a long wait. Uh, for people that are really, uh, you know, going out of their minds um, after just, uh, you know, six to eight weeks of social distancing. Um, but it's still pretty fast in the grand scheme of things. Um, I think vaccines uh, are very likely to work. They're very likely to make us immune for at least some period of time. And worst case, if that immunity does not last forever, um, we'll just mix it in with our uh, flu vaccines 
And now instead of uh, getting just a flu vaccine, you're going to get a flu plus SARS-2 vaccine. And if uh, that means that people are eager to get the vaccines because they're really scared of COVID, less scared of flu, well, then hopefully it means that a lot more people are going to be getting the flu vaccine, which could actually save lives. So in the long run, it may be that, uh, you know, we end up saving a lot more lives um, from more people getting a flu vaccine than we lost, you know, to COVID-19. That would be one hell of a silver lining to all this. Um, you know, those vaccines are likely to come to market and be available for frontline workers, if I had to guess, by the end of this year. Um, however, it's going to take a while to scale them up to the point we've got billions of doses to distribute uh, to everybody who's going to want to come out of social distancing and feel pretty secure. So um, it means that, uh, you know, we might need to hunker down for quite a while while knowing that it's finite, you know, not worrying about what the outcome will be. But that still can you know, be quite uh, taxing economically and psychologically. So you know, that's my optimism, while at the same time not really telling people that like, it'll all be fine next month. So Peter, who's likely to win the vaccine race? There's so many different types of labs. There are government labs and university labs and small pharma, big pharma, small biotech. They're all working yeah, on vaccines. I, I, I'm going to answer that in stages. First of all, we are. The human race is likely to win the vaccine race, right? So uh, I think it's important to look at it as a collective effort. Um, however, becoming, getting a little bit more practical and uh, getting into, the, let's say, the geopolitics of this, um, it, I think it's reasonable to expect that countries are going to be hustling to make sure that they can look after their own citizens. Um, there are a number of Chinese companies that are um, ahead of the curve at the moment um, and testing vaccines. And uh, some of them have direct Chinese government support, others are more independent. Um, and I would see it as perfectly understandable if uh, they allocated the bulk of their uh, early vaccine batches to uh, you know, the Chinese population. Um, and then uh, in terms of specifically which companies you know, are likely to, let's say, win it for America, um, I think that it depends on what, what you consider win it, but the first vaccines to come to market are likely to be uh, ones that involve newer types of technologies like mRNA. They were the fastest to go from getting a snapshot of what the virus looks like to having something you could test in the clinic. However, because those vaccine mod modalities, those types of technologies are newer, um, the investments haven't yet been made uh, to scale up production of those vaccines at uh, super high levels. Um, so those will be the first vaccines probably to come to market, uh, and they will likely be available to frontline workers, healthcare workers, firefighters, you know, the people that are putting themselves in harm, harm's way. Um, and it'll uh, allow us all to breathe that much easier, knowing that our frontline workers are protected, less likely to miss work, less likely to spread the infection to the people that live with them at home, their kids, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and then I think it'll be other slower but more conventional technologies that ultimately catch up. So um, in this case, it may be that the, the turtles win the race uh, because they're more scalable. So um, I think in between there, there's uh, the adenoviral vector vaccines and J&J &J is uh, you know, the big player 
in that space that may be a hybrid of the two. It's both a modern technology and quite scalable. So um, I think we have to keep our eye on the J&J program and hope that that works. It's not yet in the clinic, but um, it will be in a few months and they could potentially advance it pretty quickly through testing. Uh, we've seen the adenoviral vector vaccine uh, tested already in, um, I believe, hundreds of thousands of people uh, for other uh, viruses, uh, uh, for other purposes. So we know it's a safe uh, system and the odds are it should work. And so J&J uh, has gotten a lot of funding to scale up its production, has vowed that it would make its vaccine available at cost. Um, if uh, that does end up being the big winner, you really got to ask yourself how any company expects to make any money <laughs> off of vaccine. J&J can afford, you know, especially with some uh, supplemental BARDA funding to make a vaccine available at cost. Smaller companies, if they try to raise money from the private sector to scale up a vaccine that is what going to compete with J&J selling that vaccine at cost, that might be tough, which is why I think uh, once one big company goes, goes that way, all the other companies are going to be also dependent on BARDA funding grants you know, to help them scale up because it's no longer a for-profit venture. Um, but there is going to be potentially a market beyond the initial vaccination of the population. And that market you know, does not have to be a you know sell vaccines at cost market. It can be much more like the flu market, which you know uh, is about four billion in annual sales globally. I think about two and a half billion of revenue from the U.S. And there is a profit margin to that. And those vaccines are are pretty inexpensive per dose. Uh, there again, I think some of the um, more scalable technologies are going to be able to compete at those lower price points. If you're talking about mixing, you know flu plus, uh, you know, uh, SARS-2, um, you know, flu vaccines go for like, I don't know, $15 a dose uh, these days. So, you know, you wouldn't expect that a flu plus uh, SARS-2 vaccine would go for $115, you know, maybe $18, maybe $20, right? So uh, whoever can uh, make the uh, SARS-2 component of the vaccine very cheaply and mix it in with the flu, and sell the whole thing for a little bit more than flu is going to be, you know, a, a more um, is going to take market share in what is currently the flu market, right? So um, you got to keep an eye on what technologies are have the lowest cost of goods and are most likely to be mixable with the uh, other flu components. So um, you know, there, there's a series of stages to this race, and the ones who win the first stage may not be the ones who are competitive in the second, third stages. I think what I've heard you say is uh, there's a couple of different channels. You have some new technologies, but they have a scalability challenge. You have called the tortoise approach, which though less sexy, perhaps it's more scalable uh, and something in between that's likely to win the day. Um, yeah, well, it, it's even the stuff that's scalable uh, you have to think about the long game of, is it combinable with a standard flu vaccine inexpensively? Mm -hmm. And so um, right now, very few companies are thinking about even combining with the flu vaccine. So they're just focused on solving the problem we have today. And that's understandable. But longer term, if you're asking who's actually going to generate, you know, financial return from providing this service, which is reasonable, you know, uh, then you have to really think about who can piggyback on the uh, flu business model, you know, and be able to add in a SARS-2 component and, uh, you know, sell it 
fairly cheaply and yet still generate a profit. And you know, the technologies that may be um, either fastest to market today or even most scalable for addressing our urgent need today may not end up being the ones that are most readily mixed with the flu vaccine and you know, can serve us seasonally you know, for, for the rest of time, right? So those are three different objectives. Get to market first and help frontline workers get to market at scale, you know, to just give us all an initial vaccination. And then finally, be uh, a cost-effective, uh, inexpensive component of a broader flu plus SARS-2 vaccine that will serve us for the long run. Um, so we're getting close to the end of our, uh, our conversation. I mentioned your book, uh, fine book. Uh, I noticed it was released in January. I don't know if you call that great timing or poor timing. Um, we've had a, a heck of a past uh, three months since that time. If you were to write the book again, uh, would you have changed the thesis and the recommendations of your book knowing you, uh, that you are at the doorstep of a global pandemic or would, would your advice be about uh, I, the same? You know, the book would have been about the same. I think that the title probably would have had a virus, you know, the cover page would have had a virus on it. I would have called it like the great American COVID drug deal. You know, and it would have stole, you know, like hotcakes. Everybody would have read it and hopefully absorbed the, the key message. I believe that it's essential that we have reforms that uh, extend insurance to everybody. Uh, I'm not talking Medicare for all. You know, there's many ways to make sure that all Americans are insured. Uh, and that out-of-pocket costs are lowered uh, you know, to the point where people can actually afford what their doctors prescribe. And then to make sure that America gets good value for uh, you know, what it invests in drugs, they, it has to make sure that all these drugs do go generic. And once they're generic, they stay inexpensive. So nobody should be able to take an old drug and suddenly price jack it as if it's a new one. Um, if we can introduce reforms at lower out-of-pocket costs and ensure that all drugs go generic, we will be upholding what I've termed the biotech social contract. Um, I think that uh, you're seeing signs in Congress that people are warming to that and they're starting to diagnose the problem correctly. Uh, and I hope that once um, we settle uh, down you know, post-COVID and we've got that um, solved, and when we get back to thinking about healthcare overall, I hope that we can have a much more constructive, rational discussion about uh, the reforms we need to pursue. Well, I'm, you've been very generous with your time. I want to stop the, uh, the conversation there uh, at a very intriguing moment. Uh, if you don't mind, perhaps we can uh, meet again in six months when we can take another view of what's gone on and do a deeper dive into uh, the book and the premise and, and the social contract uh, you envision uh, on a more, let's say, sober and post-COVID, let's pray, uh, point of view on uh, healthcare policy going forward. So thank you very much for your time, Peter. That would be great. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Bill. Well, Bill, what did you think of what Peter had to say today? Well, it's extremely interesting. Uh, It's very promising that he believes that this uh, virus will have a vaccine um, and, and sometime soon. He also, I thought was interesting, he was particularly bullish on finding antiviral therapies. He thought that that, that might work on multiple 
types of viruses um, if we can find some of those good, good therapies. I found that part of the conversation very, very interesting. Um, and in the end, he started talking a little bit about co-insurance and co-pays for patients. Uh, it was a little, we, we gravitated towards his book and, and we've been doing a lot of work at Pioneer on that particular issue. I do have concerns that uh, as the drug industry moves closer to uh, rare diseases, orphan diseases, gene therapies, a lot of very expensive medications are, are emerging from these pharma labs that our insurance system is not keeping up with that. Um, and that we have a very low copay if you get a, a knee replacement, but if you have some gene therapy that might save your life, you might not be able to afford it. And I think that's problematic. And we've done a lot of work around that. Well, that's terrific. I, yes, I did have the benefit of reading Peter's book, and it does speak to those issues uh, very, very clearly. So um, I'm excited. Peter did agree to uh, do a follow-up uh, uh, podcast in, say, six months. I hope then we'll be looking at COVID uh, vaccines uh, as a, in the present tense instead of optimistically in the future. So yes. let's hope uh, that future uh, podcast will have a little more uh, positive overtones, but I did think this was an exciting, uh, uh, everything you want to know about COVID kind of uh, conversation. So I appreciate you joining us and uh, everything you did to, to help us with the podcast today. Thank you, Joe. This has been Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. If you enjoyed this show, there are three ways to support us. You can give us a five-star rating, you can subscribe to the show, and you can share it with others. I welcome your comments and suggestions if you email me at hubwonk at pioneer.org. This podcast is from Pioneer Institute. Please consider becoming a member and supporting our research at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for another episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.